Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, February 8th. Ponxatawney Phil did see his shadow, as I predicted, and we're going to have an early spring this year. I mean, we might hit 60 degrees here outside of Chicago today, so it was really a no-brainer. Speaking of shadows, one dark shadow over healthcare is medical debt. Patients getting hit with expensive and overpriced medical bills that they can't pay, and then all sorts of bad things happen. We're going to talk about two solutions to medical debt on today's show. To tell us whether they're really solutions or part of the problem are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm doing great, Dave. Terry and I are in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic, and it's just a remarkable experience to participate in coordinated patient-centric team-based care. What we love about Mayo is that our healthcare treatment regimens reflect a uniform Mayo standard of care. They're not dependent on finding the exactly right doctor. It's fantastic. It can happen. A real-life example. That's great, Dave. Thank you. Julie, how are you? I'm well. I'm in Dallas. I've spent some time this week with a number of clinical leaders from health systems listening to you know, what they're doing with digital. And Dave, we, we could talk for hours about the experience, but a lot of good intention out there. Uh, that's the beauty of the show. You guys are always on the front line. Thank you. Now, before we talk about solving the medical debt crisis, let's talk about another crisis waiting to happen if you're not prepared. And that's Valentine's Day, which is next week. Dave, without giving us too much information, are you ready? Yep. Valentine's Day. You know, like so many American traditions, this one started in Great Britain when they reduced postage rates in the 1840s. People started sending Valentine's Day cards to one another. Then Cadbury got in the act. And so we've got greeting cards and chocolates and flowers and everything else. Evidently, there are like a billion cards sent in the U.S. each day. A lot of those coming in from schools. And the average spend is 150 bucks. But the answer to your specific question, not ready at all. Going to be scrambling this year. <laughs> it's great that you have a dollar amount. I got to reflect on what I'm doing. Thank you, Julie. How are you? Are, are you Valentine's Day ready? I was actually in a CVS over the weekend buying my kids each a little Valentine's Day bag. So I was seeing them, and I was shocked of what you can buy candy wise. And it just said a lot to me about society. Like you can buy a bag of just red gummy bears. You can buy heart-shaped Starburst, heart-shaped Sour Patch Kids. Of course, you can buy your old Whitman's box and all that, which is super cute. Reminds me of my childhood. But I mean, we are over the top on the candy front for Valentine's Day here. (laughs) Personalization. Crazy. (laughs) That's great. Well, I thought I was ready until I heard what Dave said. So uh, it looks like I'll be back at the store after this uh, podcast. Thanks, thanks, Dave. That's the average spend, Dave, in the country. Uh, so, you know, you got to set your sights higher. Right. Yeah, we must be above average. So, uh, but my wife also is doing something called Galentine's Day, which is February 13th. I don't know anything about it other than I'm not involved. And I think that's good. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> that is very good. 
Speaking of involved, and there's your transition, let's talk about medical debt and two ways others are getting involved to solve the problem. The first way others are getting involved is by friends, family, coworkers, and even strangers donating to a patient's GoFundMe account to help pay off their unpaid medical bills. A study published in the American Journal of Public Health in 2022 said medical crowdfunding campaigns raised more than $2 billion from 21.7 million donations from 2016 through 2020. But only 12% of those campaigns met their crowdfunding amount goals. The second way others are getting involved is a not-for-profit organization like Rest in Peace Medical Debt paying off a patient's outstanding medical bills owed to debt collection agencies or even healthcare providers themselves. Such organizations take in charitable donations, then turn around and use that money to wipe out medical debt. Rest in Peace Medical Debt says it's paid down more than $10 billion in medical debt for more than 7 million families so far. The question is, are these two approaches the solution to healthcare affordability or part of the problem? Dave, you get crowdfunding. Uh, what are the pros and cons of this approach? And does it do anything to make medical care more affordable? There's something uniquely American and awe-inspiring about the way that everyday citizens come together to help those in need, often strangers. It really grew out of westward expansion when communities were starting faster than governments were able to provide governance. And so you see examples of this all the time, community-based organizations that rise up to solve local needs and particularly come about in times of crisis, you know, police stations and fire departments passing the hat when one of their Comrades gets hurt in the line of duty. When I was in high school, a friend of mine, Bob Dyer's younger brother had leukemia and Bob gave a bone marrow transplant and we did all kinds of activities to support the family. I, I think it's as American as apple pie. It's really one of the better things about America. And then GoFundMe came about in 2010, part of the fourth industrial revolution connectivity, the internet apps, and so on. I am writing about GoFundMe, and I think, Dave, you gave me the title GoFundMe Healthcare uh, in the new book. I can't go a week without mentioning it. But in the funding fatigue chapter, I take a deeper look at this. And there's an example from the later days of the Trump administration, where the director of White House security, a guy named Creed Bailey, caught COVID and had a bad case and ended up losing part of one leg and part of the other foot. And a friend of his, without his knowledge, started a GoFundMe campaign, and it was largely stalling. And then Bloomberg did a news story on it, and then it just took off and ultimately raised more than $80,000, much of which went to redesigning his home so that they could put in ramps and so on. But it just was telling to me that someone with White House insurance didn't have the resources when crisis struck to handle a disease. And that's where GoFundMe comes in. It's this collision between desperate healthcare needs of individuals that are desperate and need to fund the high cost of healthcare. And without other resources, they go on this longstanding American tradition and ask the community 
But as you outlined so well, Dave, the the practice is both expansive, over 250,000 campaigns a year, and most of the time doesn't work. In fact, the average campaign only raises 40% of its goal. So we force people to reveal the most intimate details of their disease or injury, and it doesn't work. It actually feels cruel. Rob Solomon, the founder of GoFundMe, did an interview with Kaiser Health News in 2019, where he talked about this phenomenon that a third of their campaigns go to fund medical need. And he said, you know, we didn't build the platform to focus on medical expenses and that it actually saddens him that this is a reality. He emphasized in this interview that he'd like to see nothing more than for medical not to be a category on GoFundMe. You know, he feels good that their platform is there for people when they need it, but also thinks it reflects the reality that Americans die when they can't pay for health care services. And here's here's a direct quote from him that just is a stinging criticism of the U.S. healthcare system. The system is terrible. It needs to be rethought and retooled. Politicians are failing us. Healthcare companies are failing us. Those are realities. I don't want to mince words here. We are facing a huge potential tragedy. We, meaning GoFundMe, provide relief for a lot of people, but there are people who are not getting relief from us or from the institutions that are supposed to be there. We shouldn't be the solution to a complex set of systematic problems. They should be solved by the government working properly and by healthcare companies working with their constituents. We firmly believe that access to comprehensive health care is a right and things have to be fixed at the local, state and federal levels of government to make this a reality. So I'll just finish up by saying I think that GoFundMe Healthcare really reflects the cruel underbelly of U.S. healthcare and its just profound failure to meet the everyday needs of people in their most desperate times. And I can't say it any better than Rob Solomon did. But I'm hoping for the day when we don't need these campaigns anymore. Yeah, here, here. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? Dave, you've written in the past about the principle of first do no harm. Do you think at this point GoFundMe is actually doing harm? <laughs> you know, it's uh, that's a really interesting question. One of the things that I find, again, uniquely American and depressing is that many hospitals now have divisions that help people set up GoFundMe campaigns when they can't pay their hospital bills. And it just feels like a way of pouring gasoline on a raging fire that we give people kind of false hope rather than substantive solutions for, for addressing these challenges. And, you know, most Americans are probably one medical crisis away of facing bankruptcy. So there's a whole lot of harm that, that's happening here. You know, GoFundMe, I think, is more a symptom than cause, but the disease is profound. Thanks, Dave. Julie, you get charitable organizations paying someone else's unpaid medical bills, either from collection agencies or providers. What are the pros and cons of this approach? And does it do anything to make medical care more affordable? Yeah, I mean, similar issues, honestly. 
And it's tough for me. On one hand, I believe in this theory that alleviating financial burden can make room for individuals and families to actually manage, you know, more complex things like health in a preventative way, of course. <laughs> it's a thing. I mean, there's data to support the thesis. And the approach honestly could be a really key component to actually transitioning people to health versus healthcare, which is what, you know, we're all we're trying to do. But, you know, when you step back and look at it, it's truly just a wealth transfer from very generous people to innovators, nonprofits, and hospitals. It does help people in the end, but is that really the goal to make those organizations wealthier? No, I don't think so. So I'm very torn, you know, with these models. And, you know, your stomping ground in Chicago Cook County Health, who I think, Dave, we actually even talked about last week, so they're becoming a a mainstay in our discussion. You know, it funds its own hospital and health system, like a lot of public systems do, to provide care to residents, regardless of income. And it's their mission to make sure that people can get care, regardless of their ability to pay. But this mission is costing them $9.3 billion a year. And with this nonprofit today, the county is spending $12 million. I mean, that's a tiny portion of its budget to retire a billion dollars worth of hospital bills for residents. So I'd actually say this nonprofit model is working for Cook County. Like, you know, it, it's now going to be part of their business model. And in the year and a half since Cook County announced its program with the nonprofit, seven other local governments have followed suit Akron, Cleveland, and Toledo, Ohio. New Orleans, Wayne County, Michigan, Washington, D.C., and now New York City. So you're seeing other public health systems align with this nonprofit to pay pennies on the dollar for their own debt, basically, the debt they're creating, really. So I went on to the site and get this. There's, it really made me laugh, actually, because I've spent a long time in Lake Tahoe as a California resident. There's a real estate agent in Lake Tahoe who started one of these campaigns and it's a $10,000 campaign. So this real estate agent, I don't know what the agent's personal interest is, but it looks like a marketing campaign for her, right? <laughs> for the agency. So wow. when you see things like that, you start to really wonder, oh my gosh, like how are we using these things? So I'm, I'm toward for sure. Yeah. You know, you mentioned wealth transfer. I get that same feeling when the kids knock on the door and they want to raise money for the high school football team. Yeah. yeah. Right. Part of me is like, isn't it, isn't that what my taxes are paying <laughs> for? But yet you want to help the, the kids buy safe helmets. So uh, yeah, it happens at all different levels. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? What does it say about healthcare prices and the way we impose them on people and the absolute disconnection between actual costs and what prices get charged that third parties can acquire unpaid medical bills for pennies on the dollars? You know, wouldn't providers like Cook County benefit by going to standardized global treatment prices for commercially shared customers? or even, dare I say it, all-payer prices. Of course, as that question's coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking Cook County has very few commercial payers, which is part of the problem. But wouldn't we just do better by having more standardized prices for routine care delivery instead of all this 
price discrepancy and back and forth with the revenue cycle. I mean, the amount of money spent trying to collect medical debt is just gargantuan. What do you think? Yeah, we cut out a lot of middlemen if we did that. That would be helpful. You know, I think the reality is this is how the system works. But what I can definitely see coming, you know, when you look at what's happening on the drug price side, look at all the attention going to price transparency and the models that are being used for pricing. And, you know, we're seeing change happening in that space now after years and years of discussing it. And I can see the healthcare prices going in the same direction. I mean, they get to the point where no one knows what they're paying for. The cost basis is varied. I'm not even sure the hospitals really have ever figured out their cost basis for these things. So, you know, we might be headed towards a train wreck on transparency, finally, hopefully, someday. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Yeah, train wreck it is, that's for sure. I think both approaches are Band-Aids that help patients, but don't do really anything to make care more affordable. You know, I'd rather donate blood or bone marrow, a kidney, or even part of a liver to help someone rather than giving them money. You know, as long as I don't get a medical bill for the donation that I can't pay for. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now let's talk about other big news that happened this past week. Julie, what else happened that we should be uh, talking about? Well, I saw a great article about how at least 19 states are now directing money from their health insurance program for low-income people into housing and housing aid and you know addressing homelessness this way and it's fueling this you know fascinating philosophical debate about whether healthcare funds apply to housing whether housing is healthcare so you know another angle on all this that we're talking about California alone is by the way directing 12 billion dollars of its healthcare health insurance money into housing 12 billion Wow. Uh, social determinants, or what do you call them, Dave? Health, healthy multipliers. Yep. Health multipliers. Yeah, that's a good trend. Dave, what other healthcare news blipped on your radar this week? Well, I've got two quick items. The first, I'm not sure whether to be impressed or depressed, but my friend Dave Burton, who's from Cincinnati, was home last weekend and was in a bar. And it turns out the Department of Health for Hamilton County is handing out little kits that enable people to tell whether or not there's fentanyl in their heroin. <laughs> Is that a good thing? Oh, my not? goodness. Okay. <laughs> and then the second one, and it, it gets to the point Julie was just discussing on transparency and drug pricing. My friend Hal Andrews wrote a brilliant piece this week on Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company. And rather than celebrate Cuban's business model as the antidote to the drug industry's blatant profiteering, as so many of us do, including me, Hal reminds us that cost plus reimbursement is how healthcare got into the current financial mess. Cost plus is still fee for service, and it doesn't always correlate with values. So back to first principles. Way to go, Hal. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta, Foresight Health. <laughs>